This is episode 513 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. There comes a time in everyone's life, at least everyone who accomplishes something of value with their life, when they quit making excuses and commit to an ideal greater than themselves. We see this in sports, in the financial arena, and in the life of faith. Almost all of our spiritual heroes, like the ones in Hebrews 11, sacrificed their comfort and security for something they could not see, for some ideal beyond themselves that only their faith could grasp. And their life was defined from that moment on when they stepped out in faith, regardless of how it turned out. Their definition of success was redefined. Their motivation for life was no longer in themselves and about their happiness, but in him, the one who called them. And for us, his church, it is time to move beyond just hearing and knowing and becoming and obeying his word. After all, Jesus did not die to give us spiritual knowledge, to make us feel better, but to transform us and make us new. It is time for each of us to come to a point where we take our faith seriously enough to face what all of us will soon face, whether we're ready or not. And it's time for us to get ready to meet our King and to live like we truly believe He's coming, because He is. Are you ready? If so, join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I've shared with you that we're going through tough times and as, as we're promised persecution and one of the five wills of God three weeks ago that we talked about was the fact that we will suffer persecution is the fact that we need to learn how to persevere when that happens, how, how to be the kind of Christians that thrived under persecution like they did in communist China, like they did in Vietnam, like they'd done in other countries, like they did in the book of Acts. What was different about them? What can we learn about the early church? This is the questions we started six weeks ago asking. What, what was the early church like? How did they think? I'm not interested in what they wore or how they, what time they went to the temple. I want to know, I want to get in their head. What did they think? What did they believe? What did they focus on? And more importantly, what was the power that they had to turn the world upside down? We think evangelism is inviting someone to come to our church. Hey, we're having a harvest festival, a fall festival on Saturday. We'd love for you to come. And so they come and bring their kids. We kind of get to know them, and that's great. Then we, then we get really bold and maybe ask them to come to church on Sunday. And when they come to church on Sunday, somehow they're just supposed to catch it from the excitement and enthusiasm and power that we have on Sunday. That's, that's the theory, but it really doesn't work that way. So what happened to their power? They knew less than we know. They, they, don't, they didn't have word study books. They didn't have Christian radio. They didn't have you know, the freedom of all these Bibles and translations that we have. They didn't have a history of the church for 2,000 years. They didn't have heroes or legacies. They didn't have any of that. And yet they turned the world upside down in a hostile, occupied land. And we have a hard time even saying no to sin in our own life are getting back up to attend spiritually that we once were and were okay with a six or seven or eight. I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, what, what did they know? What, how did God use them to turn the world upside down? And for us, it's hardly even, we can't even hardly make a difference. Was it their commitment? And if it was their commitment, how committed were they to the Lord? And the, the their commitment that they did have, how did it impact their neighbors and their friends and their families? I mean, was it true back then that, you know, a man's, members of a man's family would be his enemies? Were they okay with that? Because we're not. We would rather just not talk about the gospel and have a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner with people that are going to hell than rather be confrontational, which is what our culture says, we call it loving, and try to tell people about, well, Christ, what did they do different than we do? 
And so we started looking at those, and we started at the core, and we started looking at the fact of their commitment. And this was something that was very eye-opening to me, and we talked about this on Tuesday. Every one of the disciples, every one of the followers of Christ that we see forsook all to follow him. All, not just the 12, but the 120. I mean, where were they for 10 days with their jobs? They're all up in the the room there. Then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls and 3,000 people get saved. Those people didn't go back home. They stayed and, and amazing things were happening. They didn't care about anything in this world other than what they'd experienced with Christ. What we've been taught is that when Christ comes into our life, he makes our life better. That what we want to do, now we can do it with the favor of God, but it's still all about us. Back then in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5, when he's calling his disciples, it says immediately when he called them, they left everything and followed him. And then later on in Luke, it says they forsook all and followed him. What do we forsake? I mean, what are, what are we willing to get rid of? Well, I'm, I'm not willing to, you know, go to the go here and do this, and I can't meet with the ladies for prayer because I'm too busy doing stuff at home, and you know, Tuesday night Bible study. I mean, I got other things to do, and and I can't really get involved in this or in that. I don't mind coming occasionally or maybe faithfully on Sunday morning, but that's pretty much all I can do because you're asking with church to add something to our life. No, yes, yes, we are. That's what church is for us today. But back then, it was their life. It was their life. Their greatest joy was not making money. Their greatest joy was seeing other people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and placing themselves in situations where God would show up in a powerful way and their spiritual life would would keep growing. I've never known that in all my years of church in America. I read history of church and books and stuff, and I don't even see it in, 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 I see pockets of these revivals that break, and we don't even see it that way because it's just not what we do or, or who we are. So what does it mean to leave all and follow Jesus? What does it mean to forsake all for him? What are we willing to give up? And as I share with you, the word forsake means to send forth or away, to let go from oneself, to abandon, desert, quit. I'm done. No more. I mean, what were we willing to do? Well, when I got saved, I I decided I wasn't going to watch R-rated movies anymore, so now I just watch PG-13 movies. And so that's what I forsook for Christ. Really? I mean, that's great, I think, but... Isn't living, having the Holy Spirit live within you a little more powerful than that? Well, I'm not willing to surrender my, li- my life to the Lord because my life belongs to me. I don't want to move. I don't want to sell my house. I don't want to change my job. I don't want to, I don't want to get less than I've already got. I, I just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to not have friends. I don't want people to say bad things about me. I don't want Christians to despise me because I'm so heavenly minded. I know earthly good. I don't, I don't want that. I just want to be able to live in my own little corner of God's kingdom here, leaving, if they'll leave me alone, I'll leave them alone. And that's not light and darkness. That's what we've accepted. That's what feels comfortable. But as you study the book of Acts, it's a, the church, he's, God's constantly pushing them and constantly moving them. Well, you're supposed to go into all the world. You're supposed to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the church says, no, we're okay here in Jerusalem. We just want to stay right here. We're kind of comfortable here. I I didn't call you to be comfortable. I called you to fill the Great Commission. So if you're not going to go, I'm going to raise up a guy named Saul of Tarsus, which is going to bring this huge persecution, and all of you are going to have to flee, except the disciples. Remember? It's all part of God's plan to make us do what he wants us to do. Steve, what have you forsaken or left behind to follow Jesus? What did it cost you to follow Christ? And our response today is, well, I don't even think that's necessary. I mean, if we told people the stuff they would have to give up to follow Christ, 
then nobody would want to follow Christ. So instead, we use the sugar stick and we tell people all the things they're going to get. He's going to give you peace and joy and love and, and he's going to give you favor and he's going to make everything well and you're never going to be alone. And, I mean, wow, it's the greatest thing ever. Just come forward and get your ticket. And we forget the other part. It's all designed for a reason. If we're in the church of Ephesus today, and you're sitting next to someone who got saved three weeks ago, and you've been saved for 30 years, what would their mindset be versus what our mindset is right now? What do you think they would be talking about versus what we talk about? What do you think that would be the passion of their heart versus the passion of our heart? I mean, what enabled them to, to follow Jesus? What do they understand that maybe we don't? And I shared these with you before. They understood in an earthly kingdom. They understood that a king was coming and their allegiance was to a king, not to an idea, not to a philosophy, not to a religion, but to a king, a literal king. And they're subject to a king. They expected that he was gonna set up his kingdom in their lifetime. You can read about that in Acts chapter one. They believed that they were looking for temporal, earthly blessings from the Lord Jesus, that he was not only going to bless them spiritually, but he was also going to bless them in this world. That's what they were looking for. That's what they expected. Lord, we've left everything for you. What's in it for us? The church today said, Lord, we're not going to give you nothing, but still, what's in it for us? They had personally tasted of the power of God in their life. This is the whole point of the scale of one to 10. If a 10 is the closest you've ever been to the Lord at any time in your life, ever, then it's the time that you've experienced his power or his intimacy greater than you ever have before. And if that's the benchmark, that's where we've been, that we've either moved beyond that or we've moved below that. And so when I ask people on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the closest that you have ever been before, I can honestly tell you in the 30 years I've been doing that, I could probably count on both hands the number of people who have said, and I, I'm closer to the Lord now than I have ever been. I'm, I'm, this is a 10 for me. Most people are, oh, I'm probably an eight. That, that's acceptable, an eight. Um, maybe a six, four, three, you know. But, but you, you've tasted, you know what it's like. You, you've, you've been intimate with him. You, you've seen him move. You understand the power that he has. You've tasted of that and experienced that yourself. And yet there's something in us that is satisfied with less. Me too. What is that? How does that happen? Number four, they understood the importance of the kingdom. The kingdom, at least they should have. They shared with you when I went through this. You ought to look at Matthew chapter 13. Read those kingdom parables. They forsook everything. They sold the, uh, everything they had to buy the field with the treasures hidden, which represented the kingdom sold everything they had for that pearl of great price, a man whose job was to find pearls because that's what the kingdom is all about. And five, they understood that when the kingdom comes, it will come with trials and tribulations and persecutions and tough times, even death. They purposely knew that better than you and I would know because they watched their master die and still followed him. And that's what they experienced, persecution, tough times. Yet in all the persecution, they proved themselves to be, remember this passage we looked at about six weeks ago? More than conquerors through Christ. We run from persecution. We're afraid of persecution. But they were more. They, they just weren't just conquerors. They were more than conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what can I learn from these people of the first century. What can we learn as we look to the book of Acts? And that's what I've been studying. 
looking at their personalities, looking at their mindsets, looking at some of the things that they believe, comparing it to my own life and the life that I've known in church really since I was a baby, and I am shocked at how bad I've missed it. How bad I've missed it. Let me just give you a quick run through to show you where we are now and what the Lord showed me this week that I want to share with you. We've already looked at the commitment and what they were willing to give up to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I shared that with you, preached a message on it. We talk about it on Tuesday night as we go through the, um, you know, the chronological life of Jesus. And the fact is they were willing to give up everything. When someone comes to receive Jesus today, like in a church setting, we're going to have an altar call. And so we have an altar call and Someone comes, they want to give their life to Christ. I mean, the conversation goes something like this. It's belief. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. You've died on the cross for your sins. Was he buried, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, coming again in glory? Yes. Are you sorry for the sins that you've committed? Yes. Are you, are you willing to submit your life to Christ? Yes. Whatever that means. Yes, I'm willing to do that. And if you ask for forgiveness, you acknowledge him as Lord. You know what a Lord is in our culture today. Yes. And then you pray a sinner's prayer and you acknowledge those things. And according to the church, you're saved. You're saved. I mean, the worst part of that is you have to ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. And then you have to submit your life to him. Nobody ever defines what that means. And then you have to you know, believe that he is Lord, and the most we can come up with our mind is what, like president, like uh, an elected official, like a government official, um, like my boss, in a culture where we have no lords. We can quit. We can walk away. We don't have to do anything. And so it's a kind of a foreign concept to us. And so we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, never thinking there's a cost involved in following him. Nobody ever says, you know, if they do say, what are you willing to give up? Oh, uh, well, uh, if I come to Jesus, I have to quit drinking? Yes, well, I ain't coming. Uh, if I have to quit, quit sinning? Yeah, you're pretty much, well, I ain't coming. Because nobody else I know that's a Christian has quit sinning. Well, why should I do that? But we never talk about what it means to surrender your life to him. It means your life now belongs to him. You've been bought with a price that you are not your own. Remember all those passages? They understood and believed what they mean. We have a tendency of, of kind of explaining them away or glossing over them and kind of moving on to something else. Because the thing that we value in our culture the most is our independence. I call my own shots. I do what I want to do. I was raised to make my own decisions. Now I'm embracing Christ, which is my Lord. Lord, which means Everything I do should be funneled through him, but I don't want to do that. I instead want him to be my co-pilot. I want him to be the one that helps me make my decisions better and blesses me in the endeavors I want to do. We didn't even ask him because we're afraid of what he's going to say. What if he says, what if he says I have to go and talk to my boss and tell my boss about Jesus and if I do that, my boss is considering for a raise and I won't get the raise. I may even get fired. And you know what? I'm not going to do that because there's a place for Christ and a place for work and those two never cross. That's not how they lived. That's not anywhere found in scripture. It's just something that we do. They made a commitment to follow Christ with every fiber of their being to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nothing held back. To rest and abide and trust in him. To be united with him, as the word abide means, in heart, mind, soul, strength, volition, essence. Then I looked at the book of Acts, and I realized that how much less they knew than we know, but how much more they believed than we believed. And so I shared this passage with you for two weeks. Do you remember? Let's just take a simple passage that they believed. And I'm not going to go through this again, but here's the passage we looked at. Do not love the world. First and foremost, there's a kingdom 
and an allegiance to that kingdom, and we're stuck in a world here, but we're not to love the mission field. We're not to love the things of the fallen world in which we're to be light in darkness. We're not to love the darkness because we are light. It seems so logical for them. It seems so difficult for us. Do not love the world. I don't love the world. I don't love the terrible things of the world. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Or the things in the world. Like what? Like money, like fame, like prestige, like the ability to control your own life, like um, being something important, like, like possessions, like whatever it is that Jesus constantly talked about. The deceitfulness of wealth, choking out the fruit. All who desire to be rich will go through terrible times. The only time Jesus ever called someone a fool was the person who set aside his retirement account and kept building his retirement account to the point that his mutual fund couldn't hold his money anymore. So he said, I'm going to diversify and open up other things over here and I can sit back and eat, drink, and be merry and be only concerned about me. That's the American dream. That's what we're all striving for. That's what our culture says makes us men and successful and important. And Jesus called that man a fool, a fool. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? For if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. How can I love somebody else if I love the world? That person over there wants something from me. That person over there needs help. But if I love the world so much, we'll just use money so much that I have to take my money and bless that person, then no, I don't have that love for them anymore because I'm loving my stuff more. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all, that's pos, all, everything in the world. And he describes it, personally. Love of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away and means nothing. What a terrible way to spend our life for the things of the world that we're going to leave behind to other people who didn't work for it. Isn't that crazy? But we do it. The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. We talked about this in great detail. We know what it says, but do we believe it? And do we live like it? Most of the church I've known, most Christians that I know, including myself, give lip service to this and you know, deal with some areas that maybe we don't want anymore. Well, I don't love that anymore, Lord. But what we end up doing is trying to justify it by going, that word's agapeo. I don't love the world agapeo. I don't love anything agapeo, so therefore this doesn't count for me. And the Lord says, yeah, well, how about philia? Let's use that word for love. And here's what he says in James 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, those of you that have broken your marriage vow, made a commitment, but have gone against that. Do you not know do you not know intuitively, instinctively? I mean, everybody knows. Don't you know that friendship, philia, friendship with the world is hatred with God? It is enmity, hostility. The word means malice. That if I, I don't have to love the world, I just have to be a friend of the world, a buddy of the world. I'll give some, I'll take some. I'll make my home in this world. I'll be satisfied with this world. Everything will be okay. Me and the world, and they're all right. I don't want to work against the world because the world will crush me and I don't want that to happen. So maybe I'll just live in this lukewarm gray area where I can build my kingdom in this world and just be a friend of the world. Do the things the world says I should do. Dress my children like the world. Educate them like the world. Let them watch social media like the world, but just not as bad as I used to be since I got saved. The passage says that if I'm a friend of the world, it's not that God is displeased with me, but it is hatred, enmity, malice, hostility with God. It's black or white. 
We live in the gray. There is no gray with God. It is black or white. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world, I don't want the world to hate me. I just want to kind of be buddies with the world. If I, if I want to be a friend of the world, this is cosmos, it's the world fallen system, that I make myself an enemy of God. This word is a little bit different, if you'll notice in the first um, enmity. This word also means a person hated or rejected as an enemy. Anyone who desires to live like most people, they claim to be Christians, including myself, that I've known almost all my life. Most six, seven, eights, or nines. Most, I'm fine just like I am. Most, I'm, I, all I want to talk about is work or talk about stuff that I've done or just talk about worldly stuff. Most of the people I know, it says, make themselves someone who is hated or rejected as an enemy. That's the Greek word used of God. Do you see the danger in that passage? We don't preach this in church. You don't like me preaching it today because and that's, just, that's kind of convicting. That's, that's making me kind of choose a side. That's, that's making me, the line is drawn, make a decision. And all this stuff I'm going to have to give up, like a rich young ruler or just anyone. I, I don't, I don't want to have a Lord over me. I want to have a get out of hell free card. I want to have a genie in a bottle that I can rub and he'll bless me and give me all his favor. I don't want to surrender my life to him. We looked at their commitment. We looked at the fact that they knew more, but believed, or knew less, but believed more than we do. And here's the one that I want you to try to get hold of today. It's probably as far as we'll go. Is we looked at how they did not view the world as their home. We just alluded to this a little bit. And they didn't derive their self-worth from the things in the world. Well, you mean that God wants me to be poor? What if he does? So what? Well, no, 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 that's, 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 not, that's not how I'm raised. It's not how I'm supposed to be. It's, it's, no, you're supposed to work really hard and get a big house and a lot of money when you're older so then you don't have to work and you can take all your vacations and then you die. Okay. Sounds reasonable, does it not? And then what? And then what? Well, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and I guess he's going to be okay with how we spent our life when he has far more for us to do if we just surrender all aspects of it to him. Matthew 16. The key word, of course, is cosmos, this world system. Here's what Jesus says. What does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and it absolutely robs him of everything spiritual in his life. He doesn't have time to talk to his kids. He doesn't have time to come to Bible study or read the Bible or lead his family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He doesn't have time to reach out and minister to other people. He doesn't have time for any of that because he's too busy making money. Or a wife is, is too busy raising her children because her whole life is tied up in her kids. And that's a great thing, by the way. I'm not despairing that, but nevertheless, it's, it's only about them. We don't have time for anybody else. It's hyper-protective and all that kind of stuff because it's just what we do. What does it profit a man if he gains everything that this world system has for him and loses his own heart, mind, soul, will, and volition that should be focused towards Christ? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Because our life consists of more than what this world says. John 18, 36, Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate says, so you're a king? And Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, you're in control for the time being, Pilate, at least for the next six years. If my kingdom was of this world, cosmos, my servants would fight, fight, that I would be delivered from the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now my kingdom doesn't exist here. Well, Wherever your kingdom is, Christ, is where we're supposed to be as servants of your kingdom. So what kingdom do we belong to? This kingdom with all its intrigue 
or his kingdom? Where does our citizenship reside? Great passage here. This is the precursor to the verse I want to show you. Brethren, he says, join in following my example, the way I live, Paul says, and note those who so walk as you have, as you have us for a pattern. In other words, the way I'm living, Paul says, is the way you should be living. Follow us as a pattern. There are other people who don't follow that pattern. From many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. And they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. What do they do? Do they blaspheme Jesus? Do they say Jesus is Beelzebub? What do they do to make themselves enemies of the cross of Christ? They're enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. God is their own appetites. God is what satisfies them, whose glory is their shame. Sum it all up for me, Paul, who set their mind on earthly things. Wow, I never saw this before. Just bang. Enemies of Christ. Don't walk like I'm walking, Paul says, because there are others, obviously in the church, he's not talking about lost people, obviously in the church that are trying to lead you in a different direction, and they have their minds set on earthly things. Well, what are we supposed to do? Next two verses. For our citizenship is in heaven, not on earthly things, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look for his return with great excited anticipation. Because when he comes, he will transform, and that word there is one of the words we get metamorphosis from, transform our lowly in the state of being humble and unimportant body, that it may be conformed like the image of Christ it talks about in Romans 8.29, to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able, he has the power and the energy to even subdue. Christ has the power and the energy to place in an orderly submissive fashion, fashion all things to himself. Everything that we clamor after, everything that robs us, that Christ will subject them to himself. Remember the first John passage. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The more I look at the book of Acts and the more I see this teaching, this is important to Christ, important to him. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And so he's, they've left the upper room. They're heading across the Kidron Valley and he's teaching them and telling them this last message to his disciples. Here's what he's saying. This is his prayer to the Father. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. I have told them about light and darkness. I have shared with them what it means to be a Christian and a believer. I have given them everything that you've told me to do, and because of that, the world hates them. Do you know why the world hates them? Because they are not of the world. Has anybody ever said that of the church in your lifetime? This church, these people, man, they're just not of this world. I mean, they're just, they're just, God does incredible things in their midst. Or do we become as worldly as we possibly can, thinking we're not sinning? We model the world's music. We model the world's doctrine. We model whatever the world wants us to do. We model everything we can so the world will kind of accept us. So we'll kind of smooth them into the kingdom somehow. But to the disciples there, and the entourage, he says, the world hated them because they are not of the world. To what extent? Jesus says, just as I'm not of the world, they're like me. The world hated me because I'm not of the world. And if they're like me, the world will hate them because they're not of the world. So what are we supposed to do? Persecution's coming. Let's just pray that we'll be resolved of all of that. The world hates them. Let's move them out of the world. That's not what Jesus said. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one who will rob them of their soul. Doesn't say protect their finances or even their health, but protect them from the evil one because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is a prayer Jesus had about what would become the early church. Could he say that about me or you today? 
Could he say that about the church today? We looked at their commitment to him, where they left and forsook everything. We looked at how much they, little they knew, but how much they believed. And so as the Lord has been dealing with me about this, as I'm studying this, I wish I would have never done this. I'm being honest with you. Pick something else. Why don't we talk about the Sermon on the Mount? What are, what are you going to do about this? Steve, do you believe the passages you just read? Yeah. Okay, well, you believe them, so what are you going to do? What impact are they going to have in your life? What changes are you going to make? Probably none. I'm just going to be convicted for a while, and then I'm going to eventually learn to live with the conviction, and then I'm going to move on to something else so the conviction will kind of go away, and I'm just going to be marginally better than maybe I was before. And then this happened. It was like, um, I don't know, it was like, it's like a voice in here. And it just permeated me and it simply asked a question and made a statement. And the statement was this, you know, it's time, don't you? What do you mean? It's time. It's time for what? It's time. It's time for you to, to look at your life and to see if any changes are going to be made. And if they are, it is time. Steve, it's time for you to no longer be a hearer of the word, but actually be a doer. I was offended. Well, what do you mean? I'm a doer of the word. Really? Let's look at what it says here. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourself. Lord, what does that mean? It means that if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, that you can very easily deceive yourself by thinking being a hearer of the word makes you a doer of the word. It's kind of like, and I shared this with you before, it's kind of like the whole uh, Western culture deal about missions. We're going to have a mission conference, and we're going to preach about going to all the world and make disciples of all nations. We're going to have missionaries up here. They're going to show us their artifacts of them who are doers of the word, and we're just going to be hearers of the word. We're going to listen for three days to them tell us stories about what it's like in Papua New Guinea or Uganda or something of that nature, and we're going to go home thinking we fulfilled the Great Commission because we learned something we didn't before. We became a hearer and not a doer. And we deceive ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing himself in a mirror. I see myself, there I am. And then as I'm looking, all of a sudden I'm gone and I don't even remember what kind of man I was. I don't even remember what that image looked like. I've become someone that I don't even know who I am. Someone who's justified in hearing and not doing. Someone who's deceived in thinking that they're obedient to Christ because they believe and know rather than actually do. Deceiving yourself. Questions. Steve, are you being deceived in believing that a Christian is nothing more than what we claim it is today? I did until I started looking at the book of Acts with new eyes. And it was like the Lord just opened page after page after page, and I looked at these people, and I'm, they intimidated the socks off of me. And I'm incredibly convicted. It was, it was like, oh my gosh, these people who know less, who are just know less but believe more than, than I do, are just, God is doing incredible things in their midst. And we want him to do incredible things in our midst, but the Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The world hasn't changed. What's changed is me and them. The church has changed. Do the scriptures really present a different picture of what it means to be a child of God? And if so, which one, Steve, are you modeling your life after? The 20th century, 21st century Western church pastor that I admire? or a guy in the book of Acts who gave up his farm or his little sandal repair shop to follow this amazing spirit who now lives in him. Which one is it? What you've always known or what I've laid out in scripture?
One is that they're, they're diametrically opposed. And we have a whole segment of Christianity that basically says, well, we, we can never achieve what they did in the book of Acts because it makes us feel guilty. So therefore, there's this whole cessation. God doesn't deal that way anymore, which is ridiculous. It's just that I don't want it that bad. I'm not interested. I'm kind of comfortable the way it is right now. It's, it's okay to talk about Jesus and Games of Thrones. No, it's not. But people do it all the time on Facebook. Deceiving yourself. Are you comparing yourself to other believers? Well, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. I'm better than this person. As long as I'm better to somebody else, then I don't have to compare myself to the standard of God's word. And what is that standard? Purity, righteousness, holiness. Or, like Jesus said in the parable, have the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the spiritual fruit in our lives, in the church's lives, in our individual lives. And then I noticed this last phrase. And immediately he forgets what kind of man he was. Wow. Look in a mirror as a hearer, not a doer. And when I look away, I don't even remember what that reflection was like. Are you the same person you were when you first came to Christ? Or have you forgotten what that person was like? I would venture to say that most of us are not the same people we were when we first claimed to Christ, came to Christ. When we first met him, it was an incredible time. We were saved. As far as we knew, that was our 10. And we were willing to do anything and go anywhere and say anything. It didn't matter because Christ was so passionate and important to us. And then, like Rocky, we became civilized. We learn the proper way to talk about Jesus. We don't infringe on anybody else's right. We build a relational bridge for 75 years and then maybe invite them to come to a Christmas cantata or something of that nature. We, we have our Jesus life and the way we treat our wife at home. We have our Jesus life and the unscrupulous things we do at work. We have our Jesus life and our entertainment life and our friend's life and our sexual life and our dating life and our other life. And we don't ever want those two to mix together. It wasn't like that when we first got saved. And most of us in here, I'm making a generalization, if I asked you on a scale from one to 10, if you're not a 10, then we're less than what we at one time had been. And we've been talking about the higher Christian life and all that kind of stuff for months. And we don't care. We don't care because it's too hard. But it is time. It is time. It is time for me. It is time for you. It is time. There is no tomorrow. It's time to no longer be a hearer of the word, but become someone who does what it says. Listen very carefully. The whole point of the message. We must move beyond hearing and knowing to becoming and obeying. Jesus did not die to bring us knowledge. He died to make us new and to live in that newness of life with him. Comes a time in every person's life when they say, enough's enough. Or this one, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. You remember that one? Enough. We're finished. We're done. Every person that you admire if you admire people in the financial world, people that sold everything they had and invested in a business and burned their ships in the harbor, that person, they came to a point where there was no compromise, no backing down. I'm going to do this or die. If you admire an athlete, it was, it was that they worked harder than anybody else. They, they played basketball 12 hours a day. They just they worked harder and, and no compromise. This is what I want to do. Everybody we admire that accomplishes something in this life, even in the secular life, it was all or nothing for them. It needs to be all or nothing for us. A point in time. Now, it is time, come what may, no matter the cost. Lord, I want to serve you with absolute reckless abandon. 
to surrender our bodies, to yield our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, whole and acceptable, which is just reasonable based on what he's already done for you. It is that time. We must come to a point when we take our faith seriously enough that when dark things happen our way, we can face them like the early church did, ready or not. We can't control what happens tomorrow, but you can control what happens to you today spiritually with him. It's time to be ready to meet your king. If he came today, are you ready to meet him? Well, no, not really. I don't have any crowns or gifts to give to him. I was going to serve him later on when I get older, but no, no. He's coming. He's coming. And if we're true believers, we long for that day when he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. We need to live like we truly believe he's coming. It is time. Time. Last thought. Lord, um, okay, it's time. How do I do this? What do I do? What, how do I change? What, what, what takes place? I, I understand what you do inside of me. And I understand you know, the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the keeping in the power of the Holy Spirit and the perseverance. I know that. But what do I do? How do I change in order to be embraced by him? So you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you read all the faith stuff. And then it all ends and you get to chapter 12. Remember, when Hebrews was written, it was one long document. There wasn't a break there. And here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Steve, you're not alone at this. There's other people that have gone before you. There's people cheering you on. There's Jesus Christ who's paved the way for you. There's other people that are wanting the same thing that you want. Don't think you're the only one like, Elijah, just me. Now there's 7,000 people in, in Jerusalem that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You just don't know about them. Since we also, surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, here's what you need to do. Let us, that's your action, lay aside every weight. Now we're running a race here. And if I'm running a race with a backpack full of burdens and a backpack full of weights of stuff of this world that should be jettisoned. That's pretty crazy. I'm to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Number two, let us now run with endurance. I'm tired. Run. I feel like quitting. Run. I feel like giving up. It's never gonna, it's never gonna end. There's no finish line. Run. Run with endurance the race that he has set before us. How? Morgan has run several marathons. And they say in a marathon that you hit this, about the 19th mile, you hit this wall where your body starts shutting down and you can't do anymore. And the harder you try, it seems like you keep failing. You know, well, Morgan, how do you, how do you persevere during that? When everything is, is hurting and your body's dehydrating and muscles are beginning to cramp and your brain is beginning to, to give you a billion reasons why to quit and just stop the pain, how do you focus through that? One step after another. That's all you think about. One more, one more, one more, one more, one more. The Lord's talking about that. Only he says, when we get to the point that we just can't do it anymore, we quit looking at where we're running and we just look up and keep our eyes on the one in front of us. Jesus, looking unto Jesus, who began and ends our faith. The one who originates it and completes it. The author and finisher of our faith. Look at the race that he ran and what he suffered and what he went through. And yet it was for the joy the joy of what happens in heaven that was set before him, that he endured something we should never have to endure in the cross, the pain and agony of the cross. He despising the shame and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he ended with these words and he simply said, it is time. Time. It's time for me. It's time for you. 
It's time for believers in Jesus Christ to live like we truly believe in him. To move and focus and be empowered by him. It is time. I have no idea what your journey is going to be like. I have no idea the things he's going to tell you to do. I have no idea the stuff that he may want you to give up or the stuff that he's going to bless you with so you can bless others. I don't, I, that, that's between you and him. But there has to come a point in time when you mentally and spiritually say, I give it all to you. I surrender all. And that's what I'm asking you to do in this message, to surrender all to him. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for what you showed me this week, as painful as it was. The Lord, our world needs men and women who are filled with your spirit, who are literally light and darkness and are not ashamed to show it. Lord, you said that we're the light of the world and our light, our lives should be on a table just illuminating the entire room rather than hidden under a basket so no one can see. And yet it seems like hiding our light makes our life easier here in this world. But that's not what you called us to do. Lord, I want to ask your forgiveness for the years that I've wasted, years that I've been satisfied with the good rather than letting you do the best. And Lord, if there's anyone else in here that has experienced that like I have, I pray that you will never let us have to ask your forgiveness again. That from this moment on, that you will take our lives and you will use them in a way that just gives you glory. Come what may, for as long as you allow us to live, and it's your choice on how we live here in this world. Father, would you... Would you change us? Help us yield to you and confirm that in us by an intimacy with you we've never experienced. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.